Dead Air by Scott Overton. Chapter 3 He was at the door of Maddie Ellis's office moments after the nine o'clock news ended. There was one conspicuous absence at last night's ratings get-together, Maddie said, looking up. She frowned as he closed the door. Let me guess, you're pissed off at me. When were you planning to tell me about the team morning show? Lee ignored the gestured invitation to sit. When I saw the new chick's name on the music sheets? Chick? I assume you mean Dale Lawson. So they've hired her? You didn't know that? It's Larry Wise's decision. He's the news director. Except Arnott says it's going to be a team morning show. This woman, J.J., and me. That's a change in programming strategy. Don't tell me you weren't involved. And nobody thought to ask my opinion about the person who's supposed to be my partner? Since when do you have a say in news department hires? That's a goddamn cop-out, Maddie, and you know it. He could feel his temper slipping from his control. Jesus, I give you ten years, and that's all the respect I've earned? Dan worked with Lawson at his last station. He thinks she'll be a great fit. As for telling you, that was his job. I didn't know how he planned to do it, and I didn't ask. Sure, easier just to pass the buck. Listen, Lee, her eyes sparked. I've got a business to run. It involves a lot more than one morning man who doesn't want to share his sandbox. Your ego's bruised? Suck it up, because you'd better find a way to get along with this woman. Want more advice? Don't rock the boat when you're on a sinking ship. The meeting was over. Lee stalked to the back parking lot and stood in a slushy snowfall to let his head cool. He thought about climbing in his car and driving home, but when melted snow began to drip into his eyes, he turned back toward the office and his work. For someone with a taste for people-watching, the Christmas craft fair was a human smorgasbord. From his vantage point on a raised platform, Lee watched the milling crowd. He got shy looks from the kids, but a lot of the adults pretended not to see him. He'd pick up his microphone and they'd veer like a school of fish from the passing shadow of a gull, as if the mic were a TV camera and they might accidentally get on the radio. He was hard to miss. A wide banner overhead declared CTBX 620 The Box, favorites of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And a smaller banner in front of the table identified CTBX Morning Personality Lee Garrett. It amused him to think how long the banner would be if it used his real name, Lehman Ryan Grettenwald. His parents had been hurt when he changed it. He had no brothers, so the family name died with his father. But Lehman Grettenwald was too clumsy for the radio rock jock he'd wanted to be. For that, you needed a name people could easily get their tongues around and remember. That was why so many announcers used two first names, like Keith David or Peter Michaels. Easy to say, easy to recall. He remembered the bowl sessions about it in his broadcasting course. You gotta have a name with familiarity, like Edgar Allen. Poe? A little obvious, isn't it? But you don't use the last name. You just want something that twigs people's memories. Look at the magician David Copperfield. An obvious steal, but people never forget it. What about a career reference? Your business is talking, so you call yourself Oral Roberts. Even more memorable, Oral Sex. Right, the shortest radio career ever. Five minutes, and then he gave his name. 
At Lee's first job, he'd actually used a second made-up name and a slight change of voice when he had to do weekend newscasts. No one ever made the connection between his two aliases. His craft fair cut-ins back to the radio station were going well, with dozens of on-location broadcasts every year, remotes, as insiders called them. It was second nature for him to ad-lib 60 seconds worth of fluff about Christmas decorations and embroidery kits. The fair's promoter had even kept the exhibitors off Lee's back, knowing that a few would always try to get more than their share of mentions on the radio. He'd just finished a live cut when an elderly Asian man stepped out of the crowd, a woman at his side. You're Lee Garrett, aren't you? From the box? Lee's name tag and banners were superfluous. People always wanted verbal confirmation. That's right. How do you do? He extended a hand and the man shook it, but didn't introduce himself or his wife. Bright eyes sparkled in a friendly face and the accented voice was unaffected by age. Your ex-wife make any good investments lately? The man waited expectantly. Lee used a non-committal smile like a mask until he could place the reference. Then he got it. A couple of weeks earlier, he'd mentioned an article about investment counseling and ended by saying, I have somebody who looks after all my money too, my ex-wife. It was a worn old bit, but the old man wanted to show he remembered it. Lee's real smile took over. Well, if she has, she hasn't told me about them. The couple chuckled, pleased to make a connection. Emboldened by the exchange, the woman turned to her husband. You'd better watch out, or he might make you sing for your breakfast. She laughed while the man shook his head and said, Not the way I sing. Lee suppressed a groan. The sing-for-your-breakfast contest had ended more than a year before he arrived at the station. God's way of making sure his head didn't get too big. He smiled and thanked them for dropping by. CTBX listeners were the best, friendly, salt-of-the-earth people. Of course, there were always a few who wore out their welcome, the radio groupies. Lee's smile vanished when Dennis showed up. Dennis had been known to scare paying customers away from a store. In his early twenties and unnaturally skinny, his oily, sand-colored hair pushed out from under a dark blue Toronto Blue Jays baseball cap wherever it could find an opening. Dennis always had two days' growth of beard and eyebrows so blonde they were all but invisible. Indoors, his eyes picked up some blue from the ever-present ball cap, but in sunlight his irises blended into the surrounding whites with an effect that was spooky. Hi, Lee Garrett. Hey, Dennis. What's up? Not much. I came to see you, Lee Garrett. You going on the radio soon? In a few minutes, yeah. Any real conversation would encourage the man to hang around. Doug Rhodes sometimes pretended not to see Dennis at all. I'm making deliveries for the drugstore, Lee Garrett. Somebody at the Ukrainian Federation booth needs cold medicine. Lee nodded and smiled at a vaguely familiar face in the crowd. You got any free pop? Nope. The exhibition center's refreshment stand wouldn't be happy with us if we did that. You got a contest? Pale eyes lingered over the cardboard ballot box near the end of the table. Lee sighed. Yeah, Dennis, fill out a ballot. Just one. You could win an artificial Christmas tree. He watched the man peel off a ballot slip from a pad and laboriously print his name. You know, Dennis, there must be at least twenty booths here with free draws. You could win all kinds of good stuff. Yeah? The corner of his mouth lifted into a smile that showed a crooked tooth. Where? A booth nearby was selling Christmas tablecloths. It featured a draw for a quilted runner for the top of a buffet. Lee pointed. You could win a kind of tablecloth for your mom. Dennis's face darkened. Then he said, Grandma would like it. Thanks, Lee Garrett. 
He meticulously folded his ballot three times and poked it into the top of the box. See you later. Lee nodded. The ploy might have bought him a half hour of peace. The song on the radio caught his ear. Jonathan Edwards singing about a man trying to run his life. Everybody felt that way sometimes. Lee looked at the faces passing by. If he could see beneath the skin of pink and tan and brown, beneath the brows thick and thin propped up by assorted eyewear, past the tentative smiles and noncommittal frowns, would he see someone who had threatened his life? Excuse me. A woman and a boy stood near the table. There was something familiar about her, dark hair framing a pale complexion, delicate features and long lashes. She was memorably pretty, but he couldn't place her. The boy just stood staring into space. Hi, what can I do for you? At the sound of his voice, the boy looked at him, but it was the woman who spoke again. You're Lee Garrett, aren't you? That's right. My name is Candace Ross. This is Paul Schwartz. He's a very big fan of yours. There was an appealing innocence to the boy's smile and tussled blonde hair, but something unusual about the eyes. Perhaps he was mentally challenged. Hi, Paul, Lee said, and the boy raised his right hand with a copy of the craft fair program in it. Can I have your autograph? Quiet, a little uncertain. Sure, my pleasure. But can you wait just a second? I have to go on the air right now. From a small portable boombox on the end of the table, he could hear Doug Rhodes finish a public service announcement and go into an introduction about the craft fair. Lee straightened and brought the microphone to his mouth. Thanks, Doug, and I have to say that this year's fair really has something for everyone. His words trailed off as his mind registered the sound of a jingle coming from the radio. Something was wrong. Rhodes had gone to commercials instead of to him. The promotions department provided a cell phone for remotes. He snatched it up. What's wrong, Doug? Everything was working fine. I don't know, Rhodes said. The signal's gone. It was there a minute ago. I could hear a background noise. Now it's dead. Did you lose power? Lee checked his cordless microphone. The mic was on and the battery was good. I don't know, Lee answered. I'll check the transmitter in a minute. But first, is this phone signal good enough to put on the air? You don't have room to do a make-good if we miss this cut-in. You're right about that. The cell signal's shitty with all that metal around you, but it's not breaking up. I'll introduce you again. Hang on. While Rhodes punched buttons to put the telephone on the air, Lee gathered his thoughts and launched into his report as if nothing had happened. When he was done, he scanned the crowd, but there was no sign of Pete, the station's remote setup technician. With a muttered curse, he jumped down from the platform and began to push his way through the crowd like swimming against a current. Pete had put their equipment just outside the exhibition center's doors, a receiver for the wireless microphone and a portable transmitter unit that sent a signal back to the radio station. Lee squatted to check the gauges. They registered normal. The equipment was still getting electrical power. He spoke into the microphone and the needles of the volume meters on the mic receiver bounced the way they should. He began to check the cable connections on both pieces of gear. As he shifted position, he glanced up and caught the face of the dark-haired woman about thirty feet away. Candace something with that boy. He'd completely forgotten about them. And she clearly wasn't pleased. She snapped her head around and walked quickly away with the blonde boy and a light-haired man at her side. Lee rocked back on his heels and sighed. If they'd been fans before, they weren't any more. He looked back down at his hands, just as his fingers found the end of the antenna cable where it connected to the transmitter, where it should have connected. The wire had been cut. He slowly stood, the end of the severed cable in his hand, and peered into the faces of the people flowing past. Did one of them have a pair of wire snips in his pocket? There should be a spare antenna cable in the station van parked nearby. Pete could make the swap within a few minutes. 
Lee examined the cable, and a muscle in his jaw twitched. As he stood beside the rink boards that evening, Lee closed his eyes and savored a sound distinctive to hockey arenas and nowhere else, a rustle of sibilance created by voices, bass notes lost in distance while higher register sounds took on a life of their own, bouncing between hard ice, steel girders, and corrugated roof. The boom and echo of a frozen puck rocketing off the boards, and the harsh scrape of a skate blade making a quick stop brought back memories of his school days. He'd never been a great skater but he appreciated the skill of players who made the game look effortless. The traditional red carpet was rolled out to center ice, and he adjusted his tie of the same color. He wasn't the only one in a suit. The sport of hockey involved massive protective padding and often bandages and stitches, but it still maintained a firm tradition that officials, coaches, and off-duty players should be seen in the attire of gentlemen. His first words boomed too loudly out of the speakers, turning into the ringing whine of feedback until a technician brought the volume down. This was his fifth time as Master of Ceremonies for the tournament's opening, and it always began the same way. Thanks for coming tonight. Glad you could be here. Leave it to Canadians to complain for half the year about slush and snow and then gather around sheets of ice indoors. There were polite chuckles. The opening ceremonies never drew a large audience to the countryside sports complex, mainly the families and friends of out-of-town players who had nothing better to do between games. He offered a few more quips, made the requisite introductions of dignitaries, and listened to their speeches. Afterward, he climbed the stands. His old friend Matt Miller was ready to begin the cable TV broadcast of the next game with a single camera and a desk just big enough for two chairs. Miller was a sports writer for the Sudbury Star, but calling hockey play-by-play -play for the Eastlink Cable Community Channel was a sideline he enjoyed. Lee thought he was good enough for network TV, but Miller had chosen the small city life for the sake of his family. Lynn Miller worked as an accountant for CTBX Z104. Miller had a big, friendly smile, and he used it a lot. Thanks for coming out, Lee. Having somebody to do the color commentary gives me a bit of a break. No problem. I get a kick out of it. Is Gary playing this weekend? Not in this tournament, Miller replied. He and my other son, Jeff, are both playing an attorney in Quebec. Wish I could be there, but I've got another commitment tomorrow. The cameraman gave them a one-minute-to-air warning, and they quickly discussed a few points. It didn't take long for Lee to get comfortable, analyzing some of the standout shots and offering a verbal instant replay the cable company couldn't provide on video. The game was a close victory for the home team, thanks to a goal in the final minute of play. If that one's any indication, we're in for an exciting weekend, Lee said in their post-game summary. Better believe it, Miller replied, and gave a closing wrap-up, thanking the sponsors and volunteers, and urging his audience to buy tickets for the rest of the games. Coming for a beer in the VIP lounge? he asked as he hoisted himself out of the plastic seat and massaged a sore butt. Lee didn't really feel like socializing, but it was a Friday night and no one waited for him at home. Sure. I'll even let you buy. Miller laughed and turned to invite the cameraman, insisting that Lee had a generous expense account. The small banquet room high between the two ice surfaces had been set aside for VIPs and media people. Lee's smile slipped away as he spotted a man across the room in crisp gray slacks and a sparkling white golf shirt with a beer company logo embroidered on the left breast. Of course he'd be there. His company was a major sponsor of the tournament. 
Ken Cousins looked like a Ken doll with his sculpted good looks, impossibly perfect hair, and polo Ralph Lauren wardrobe. His presence always made Lee feel like a slob. Lee turned quickly toward the bar, but he knew Cousins had seen him. Sooner or later they'd have to put on an act and exchange small talk. It turned out to be sooner. With drinks in hand, Miller steered him over to a group of minor hockey officials and sponsors. Lee congratulated the tournament organizers and accepted their praise for his handling of the opening ceremonies, but when Miller was asked for his coaching opinion on some of the young players, the circle tightened and Lee found himself on the fringe. Lee, how the hell are you? Good, Ken, you? Keeping out of trouble, damn it. The smile was pasted on. Besides, Rita keeps a tight rein on me these days. How's Michaela? Cousins certainly knew about the divorce. She's fine. How's Barbara? The man's jaw tightened and a light flush rose under the perfect blonde hair. Cousins turned to the man beside him and offered to get him another beer. Miller had caught the exchange. Who's Barbara? I thought Rita was his girl for years now. She is. Barbara was his assistant last year. The one with the long blonde hair and the big... That's the one. And before Barbara there was Liz. His assistants don't last too long. So how do you know all this? Lee hesitated, then decided the young woman wouldn't care. From Lisa. She was on Cousin's string once for a few weeks. She caught on sooner than most and confronted him. I think he actually bragged about his conquests. Lisa? Lisa Moore? Miller seemed surprised that the Z-104 midday announcer with the sweet face knew what sex was. Lee shrugged. The guy looks like a male model, and I'd bet he spends every spare hour at the gym. I've seen Tracy Banderjee practically throw herself at him, but he wasn't interested, for once. A roar of laughter behind them proved that Cousins could also entertain an audience with a well-stocked repertoire of jokes, and beer for those he liked. There were a few guilty looks in the circle of faces, as if the joke had been particularly tasteless. I'm going to head home, Matt. It's been a long week. Sure, okay, thanks for helping out. Lee gave the table of appetizers a look of regret and pushed through the heavy glass door. He nearly ran into a paunchy man in a blue suit. God, the evening was turning into a nightmare. He gave a nod and received an icy glare in return. The man moved on and Lee ran a hand over his face. Andre Menard had been the first person to invite Lee for a beer when he started at CTBX. He was hard not to like, loud and garrulous, able to say the most scandalous things without causing offense. He had the perfect salesman's personality and the station's best client list. They'd discovered a shared interest in old cars and hockey, and the friendship had become a close one. Until one day at a remote broadcast, when one of Menard's clients had asked Lee about the off-the-record premiums he paid for special placement of his radio commercials. Lee's curiosity had led him to the truth, but he wished it hadn't. With subtle favors and little gifts, Menard had charmed station staff into giving his clients preferential scheduling on the air. The extra fees he charged for it didn't end up in company coffers. Lee lost sleep trying to decide what to do. He probably would have let the whole thing drop if it hadn't been for one bad day. Feeling as poor as he'd ever been, late in his alimony and behind on half a dozen bills, he approached Arnott and Ellis for a raise, only to learn the corporate bosses had declared a salary freeze. As he stormed out of the building in a fog of anger, Menard rolled into the lot at the wheel of a brand new BMW, grinning like the Cheshire Cat. It was more than Lee could take. He invited the salesman for a drink and ambushed him. There was an ugly scene that ended with Menard pounding on the trunk of Lee's car while it drove away. 
The phone rang all evening, and Lee reached a new low as his former friend pleaded, raged, and even offered to cut him in on the scam. Menard resigned, and Lee kept his mouth shut. Everyone was utterly dumbfounded that the station's top account executive would leave it all behind. Everyone except Lee Garrett. What a night! Could he make his escape from the arena without running into anyone else who hated his guts? Hi, Lee Garrett! Dennis's off-kilter smile gave him an eight-year-old's face on a man's body. Good God, not now! When I heard you were coming here, I volunteered. I'm giving out programs. Lee's practiced smile failed to ignite. It's good that you're helping out, Dennis, but I'm afraid I've got to get going. See you later. He pushed through the doors before Dennis could think of a response. The bite of the fresh air was sweet relief, but it lasted no more than a few steps. His mind recoiled at the scene exposed by the dull lights of the parking lot. Someone had run a key down both sides of his car, making deep gouges in the paint. All four tires were slashed flat, and on the hood was scratched a stylized S. In Chapter 4 of Dead Air, Lee Garrett gets a cold shoulder from the police, a chance to reluctantly make amends, and a taunt from a prime suspect. If you can't wait to hear the rest, go to scottoverton.ca and find out where to buy the book. Thanks to audionautics.com for the music, and thank you for listening. I'm Scott Overton.